Hello, and welcome to Walking the Labyrinth. My name is Keith Burton. Over the past three decades, I've worked with many of the world's largest companies on employee communication and employee engagement strategies. I have a true passion for this work. It's based on my interactions with thousands of senior executives, frontline managers, and hourly employees. We've created this podcast to take you inside the world of employee communication, as well as to address the larger issues that are at work globally in the public relations profession. We'll interview top leaders and communication executives on the challenges they face. We'll share case studies and examples of great programs being developed to answer the needs that companies have today. We'll take a look at business, social, cultural, and political trends that influence our work and how we communicate with and engage others. And now, let's journey together into the labyrinth on our path toward discovering new ideas and inspiration. I remember the first time I saw the Chartres Cathedral. I was traveling from Paris by car, and as we topped a hill, this majestic church climbed out of the rolling fields of wheat in the countryside. When Chartres Cathedral was built in the 13th century, a medieval maze known as a labyrinth was set into the floor of the church. Since most people could never make it to Jerusalem, the symbolic kingdom of heaven and the center of Christendom, they would go instead to churches in places like Canterbury, Santiago de Compostela, and of course, Chartres. Once there, they would end their pilgrimage by walking the 40-foot wide labyrinth to the center and then they would slowly retrace their steps to regain the outside world. Fast forward to 2016. Today, business leaders walk their own personal labyrinth. They wind their way through the maze, hoping to overcome corporate restructuring, mergers and acquisitions, bad governance and broken covenants with external stakeholders. When they retrace their steps, it is back into a world of rapid growth fueled by increasingly demanding expectations from shareholders, special interest groups, regulators, governmental authorities, and of course, their own employees. Retaining and growing leaders has never been more important. Senior executives know it, but they still struggle. They say they believe in deeply held values, their people, and the corporate cultures they've built. But what they say is different from what they do. In 2014, the SED School of Business at Oxford University and Ernst & Young launched a collaborative project at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. This project was designed to examine how corporate purpose is linked to agility and transformation. More than 20 global CEOs were interviewed about how they build purpose into corporate initiatives. 400 additional leaders were surveyed on the topic of orienting their companies to perform against purpose rather than profits. While 87% of these leaders agreed that being purpose-driven instead of profit-driven would help bring better financial returns, greater customer satisfaction, and increased social benefits, most said that purpose was not the prime mover in their organization. Why? Because their strategies, their product development functions, and their business models were poorly aligned with their purpose, meaning the desired state was not being translated into action. A colleague who is chief communications officer for a major brewing company recently told me that he's been struggling privately with the way shareholder value creation, which I translate into making more profit, affects decision making and the actions of managers. 
Regrettably, employees are affected much too often today by decisions that are made to enhance shareholder value. In 2015, Gallup told us that only 32% of U.S. workers were engaged in their jobs. More than 50% of employees were not engaged, while another 17% were actively disengaged. While they're not hostile or disruptive, these employees often do the minimum required in their jobs, and they don't always perform at a higher level for customers. They're less vigilant about safety, more likely to miss work, and they may be tempted to change jobs when new opportunities arise. They're either checked out or they're attempting to get their job done with little or no management support. Why is it that employees are not engaged? Because we don't set expectations for job performance and accountability. Because we do a poor job in training and developing people. Because we no longer make the effort to recognize people for a job well done and to thank them when they go above and beyond the call of duty. Because we take actions that profoundly affect them, like reducing headcount, or cutting investment spending, or increasing productivity requirements without giving them the resources they need, and by adopting policies and practices that they consider to be punitive. Because we conduct employee engagement surveys, and then we expect these studies to function as employee engagement programs instead of taking real actions to drive real conversations. We live and work in an increasingly global digital world where boundaries and borders are blurred. We're global travelers and global consumers, but we still need to feel like people and that we matter. We need to know that our voices are heard, our preferences, attitudes, and beliefs are carefully considered, and that our stories will make a difference. We walk the labyrinth as we lead others. It's not idealistic to say that our leaders must place corporate values at the heart of their work inside the company. Above everything else, we must seek to build trust in a world that is soured on hype. What is employee communication? Some people may say it's internal communication. Others sometimes refer to it as organizational communication. No matter what you call it, it's the strategic discipline we use to drive communication and interaction among employees. It's the way we describe and explain organizations. When structured for success, employee communication is critical to how employees share information, create relationships, make meaning, and build organizational culture and values. When poorly led or organized, it can be a true liability for leaders and their organizations. At one time, employee communication was newsletters, bulletin boards, primitive presentations that used overhead transparencies, and a repurposing of news releases for internal consumption. It was a dead-end job for career-minded professionals and the place where companies assigned underachievers. A sad caricature, to say the least. That all changed starting in the 90s with the first wave of corporate reengineering. In 1992, I teamed up with Dr. Robert Barrier, one of the world's leading research authorities, and Dr. Clark Kaywood, a true thought leader in integrated marketing communication at Northwestern's Medill School, to innovate the first integrated employee communication model for IBM Corporation. For the first time, we used research as a listening tool to mine for knowledge, to spot information gaps, and to diagnose where leaders and frontline employees were not aligned around business strategies. We turn the tables on top-down communication by placing frontline managers and supervisors 
into the role as privileged carriers of information. We created a new anthem, calling it One Voice, One Look, to signify the importance of aligning the internal brand with the external face of the organization. And we created new metrics to show how new behaviors could improve commitment and performance. Three decades later, employee communication is the strategic business discipline that we envision for the United States, Western Europe, and in parts of Central and South America. In other global geographies, it aspires to be more and do more, but struggles because of a lack of commitment, understanding, or resources. The new model in best-in-class companies is designed to create value in today's environment. There are five attributes of this model. First, it's analytics-based, tied to business performance, outcomes, and strategy socialization. Second, it's all about driving discussion, dialogue, and debate among employees. Third, it optimizes the company's ability to communicate at every level. Fourth, it's platform agnostic, integrated, democratized, multi-way, and utilizes peer-to-peer -peer channels. And fifth, rather than being one size that fits all, it's segmented and targeted for influence, engagement, and social prowess. For those interested in learning more about best-in-class practices in employee communication, please visit the Institute for Public Relations Commission on Organizational Communication, which can be found at www.instituteforpr.org. There you'll find our global study, Best-in-Class Practices in Employee Communication, through the lens of 10 global leaders. We'll close with a story that underscores the value and importance of real employee communication. After the downsizing associated with IBM's reengineering in 1992, I walked through the floors of the iconic Mies van der Rohe-designed IBM Plaza that rises like a sentinel along the Chicago River. In the early morning hours, shafts of sunlight sprayed into empty cubicles and offices, tracing along carpeted hallways that a week earlier teemed with people. Now everyone on the floor was gone, victims of a major downsizing spawned by the earliest reengineering project in American business. In the wake of the employees' departures, the floor was cluttered with the personal artifacts of their work and careers at IBM Corp. Huge wheeled dumpsters filled with bulging manila file folders and computer printouts set in quiet testament to the corporate carnage that had taken place. The IBM leader accompanying me stopped to examine a few of the files and then shook her head as we moved down the hall. It's funny, she said, unemotionally, in assessing a critical challenge that we face during a change process, that of communicating clearly to cut through information overload. And then she said, today, we're gagging on data and starving for information. It's a line that's never been lost on me. In 1992, as in today, when employee communication is poorly led, we gag on data and we starve for information. I certainly can say at this point in my life, I focus a lot of my attention on the responsibility I feel for helping build the next generation of, of PR professionals in, in a business that itself has become so much more valuable, I think, than even when I first got in it.
How do companies engage people today? What drives conversations with employees? And what programs do leaders use to build communities inside their organizations? I traveled to Washington, D.C. recently where I had dinner with Pat Ford, a good friend and colleague who served with distinction for almost three decades at Burson Marsteller, one of the world's top public relations firms. Pat and I served together on the boards of the Institute for Public Relations and the Planck Center for Leadership in Public Relations, both of which have honored him for his service and contributions to our profession. He's also a member of the board of directors of the LeGrant Foundation, whose mission is to increase the number of ethnic minorities in the fields of advertising, marketing, and public relations. Pat today is vice chairman and chief client officer at Burson. He's also served as the firm's regional president and CEO in North America and as chair of the Asia Pacific region. While he's worked with thousands of global clients and led teams delivering world-class programs in corporate reputation management, senior executive communications, media strategy, and issues and crisis management, he has an even deeper passion for mentoring and leading young professionals. He's achieved success through the years and now Pat Ford is pursuing significance in the way he serves young leaders. As we enjoyed dinner that evening, he talked in detail about a very creative program he innovated a decade ago, that of bringing staff professionals and even client teams together for wine tasting events to drive conversations and to build internal communities. We did it for a number of reasons. Number one, I was at that point maybe five or six years, six years into this hobby myself, I was getting to know enough that where I started to realize that part of the beauty, as many people have discovered who, who develop an interest in wine, a lot of the benefit is what you can give to other people. And I don't mean just give them wine, which I do, I'll come back to that. It's you can give them the benefit of this, all this research you've done and all this fascinating study you've done and even if they're not going to be interested in getting deeply involved in wine, almost everybody is in social circumstances. And certainly for our young professionals, at some point, they're going to be entertaining clients or they're going to be getting together with, as, with their colleagues. They're going to be going to dinner parties and you, you, know, you want to know what might be a nice wine to take. Yeah. Or if you're entertaining, what would be a nice wine to serve. Yeah. If you're in a restaurant, how do you navigate a wine list? So this was always intended just to be, I hope, interesting enough that people that already have some knowledge might find it interesting, but a total beginner can, can enjoy these. How does Pat organize these wine tasting events to achieve the goal he has for engaging others? Here's what he said. I organize them around several core questions. Does where the wine come from matter? What we call terroir. Does the vintage matter and why? Do the glasses matter? Does the, um, what, does the type of grape matter or where it comes from in the world? Um, and and, and how, do they, how do they decide when they've blended these grapes, how they're gonna combine them? Do, do wine ratings or wine reviews matter? Uh, and in each of these, the answer, of course, is yes, but. We then organize the discussion around, we put out four wines, and usually what I do is 
the local office we're doing it in buys three of the wines with actually me picking it out for them. And the last wine of the tasting, so far this has been the case in every tasting I've done, the last wine of the tasting comes from my own personal okay. cellar. Yeah. And, um, and it's almost always a magnificent Cabernet that we're finishing up with. Yeah. And, um, and so we'll, we'll usually start with a white from somewhere. Yeah. And then we'll have a light-bodied red. The third wine will be a medium-bodied could be a Malbec, it could be a Brunello, it could be a, a Carmenere from Chile. Uh, I usually try to have a mix of geographic sourcing and different grapes. So part of the discussion is I'll always have a slide around, you know, if it's from Burgundy, if it's a white Burgundy, it's the Chardonnay grape. So tell me about the Chardonnay grape. And I would tell them about, um, you know, that, the noble grape of Burgundy. Um, well, both of them, Chardonnay or Pinot, and um, and then we'll then we'll talk a little bit about the terroir and about where why it matters where it's from, why some places grow those those grapes better than others. During our conversation that evening, I was curious: Are these wine tasting events meant to bring together staff and clients who may not have the time to socialize, or are they simply meant to build communities inside the firm and within clients? Why do them? We tend to be, in our business, workaholics. We tend to be focusing all the time on how we can serve the clients better and how we can do this or that different part of our business better. But we also need to find different ways, and there are many different ways to do it. This is one of them, to build some uh, some fun into the into the environment and have a have a you know an opportunity to get colleagues together we've done them by the way with colleagues and clients we've we've had a number of them we raised a lot of money one night we did one in new york we actually had to move it to our parent company's headquarters because we had so many clients and staff interested in it so part of it is that just it's a nice way for us to build more camaraderie among our team but also and the and the business part of it is there there you you can't just be talking business and and budgets and other things with clients all the time i i i may come across one who doesn't feel this way but i haven't yet encountered a client or a colleague that didn't find it nice to have somebody be able to pick out a wine that they like what i love doing is finding somebody who thinks they don't like white wine or thinks they don't like Chardonnay because they've heard about or Merlot. Usually, you know, if you don't, if you tell me you don't like white wine, my answer is you haven't had the right ones. So let's try some. I've just done three of these in the past month and a half. One in Washington, one in Chicago, and one in New York. In every one of them, long after the tasting was done, and I was finally, the old man in the in the room was finally leaving. I'm telling you, in every one of those cases, the room was still pretty packed hours after we started. With they're sitting around and they're and they're, and they're having social conversation, right? So they're building the community and they're talking about some things they hadn't really thought about before about wine. One, I, I, I was on the board of a nonprofit group at one time, and the, and the president of that group was a remarkable man that would help. Um, 
grassroots organization in inner cities all around the country. And he used to talk about what he was looking for in board members. And what he said was, we want people who've achieved success and now seek significance. And I thought that was a great description. And I think when you see real leaders in our business, like a Harold Burson, they get to a point where they don't need to prove their PR chops anymore. And they're still, and in many of those cases, they're still, they're still successfully running businesses, but they're, they're focusing a lot of their attention. And I certainly can say at this point in my life, I focus a lot of my attention on the responsibility I feel for helping build the next generation of, of PR professionals in, in a business that itself has become so much more valuable, I think, than even when I first got in it. Um, and so a lot of that has to do with helping young professionals. Really, what gives me great pride about being invited to join the Plague Center board. And and uh, but it, but in a number of the things I get involved in, what's what what you the time you spend mentoring young professionals is much more valuable than probably is more valuable to me than it is to them. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a real currency there. And so some of that, and a lot of that has to do with, I mean, it's not gonna help if I'm just teaching them to read a wine list and, and they're not really learning their, the skills of the trade. And I suspect that, especially as we try to diversify our, uh, our field, we're gonna have people coming from different backgrounds and different professions who may or may not have been in a position where they were needing to um, to operate in a collaborative system the way we do in a PR agency or to or to assist clients in the way we need to assist clients. So if I can help them not only to think about how to develop PR strategy and develop better engagement strategies for clients in in this in that professional sense, but also how to how to build a, the softer side of that relationship. I'm happy to invest in them, but I think equally helpful, I hope, is sharing some of what I've spent some time, some of my, some of my work-life balance has really been blending some of the social things you do as a professional and you do in your own personal life. Finally, as we air future episodes of Walking the Labyrinth, we want to make it our practice to ask leaders their perspective on the future of our profession and the forces that will shape it as we move toward 2020. Here's what Pat Ford had to say on that topic to close out our interview. To me, the most important part is staying focused. A lot of times we tend to start with, with understandable reasons. We focus on some of the technology that happens in communication or some of the other tactics that happen. But at a fundamental level, the desire, really the demand of, of every kind of stakeholder, whether it's an employee, shareholder, customer, community where you operate, is that this isn't going to be just superficial engagement, that you are actually going to be developing a mutually beneficial relationship that involves genuine listening. And of course, especially through research, so that you're hearing what beyond what your own little echo chamber thinks it's hearing, um, but also that that is ready to actually address 
what you hear when you listen. Yeah. And um, and as we as we deal in our business with millennials, as as our as our clients deal with with new um, relationships with clients, as as they find different ways of sharing that information, you know, I think we all agree that even as much change as we've had in the past 10 years, there's that much still to come, and even within the next uh, three or four years. Uh, I think that's a huge opportunity, but also a huge challenge that we've just got to constantly keep in front of us. And um, so I think that's really on us as leaders of the business to lead the way on that and lead the thinking. In case you were wondering, yes, Pat and I did enjoy a great bottle of wine that evening. Our sommelier recommended a 2012 Odette Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa's Stag's Leap District. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Have a question, comment, or an idea for a future episode? We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at SKeithBurton. You can also reach us on email at podcast at graysonemmett.com or on our contact page, graysonemmettpartners.com slash podcast. Walking the Labyrinth is produced by Keith and Jarrett Burton for Grace and Emmett Partners. Until next time. Thank you.